Welcome to episode number 87 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about practical considerations for installing explosion protection systems. To do that, we have back on the podcast, Rick Smith. Rick, I want to thank you for coming back on the Dust Safety Science Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So those of you that are listening to these in sequence, you'll know that we had Rick on in episode 86 talking about lessons learned from a corn milling explosion. Um, he has a background in healthcare before moving into the environmental health and safety world many years ago. And, and a lot of those working in industries that handle combustible dust and eventually really focusing on this as, a, as an area of uh, specialization and expertise in his work. So as I mentioned in the, the previous episode, I really enjoy doing these interviews with folks that are working as operators and, and working with the owners of facilities, sort of from the inside looking out, if you will, do a lot of uh, interviews with experts that are, you know, giving opinions on how to do installation, how to select equipment, that sort of stuff. But it's good to get the perspective of somebody actually working in these facilities every day um, and share that on the podcast as well. So I appreciate Rick taking the time to come on and do that. In the previous episode, we talked about some of the things involved around an explosion that he was involved with at his company and what they did in terms of generating lessons learned, what kind of things they implemented this episode, we're going to talk more about installing explosion protection systems. You know, what kind of systems has Rick been involved with working with? Can he walk us through what the process looks like? How do you find suppliers? Um, how do you organize a team for installation? How do you do ongoing maintenance and that sort of stuff? Just sort of pick his brain on his experience with this. So, Rick, thanks for coming back on. I guess the place to jump in is what kind of protection systems um, have you been involved with installing and, and managing over the years with uh, your, your background? So we've had a few different applications and really looking at where the potential sources might come from as far as ignition or you know, the dust controls, et cetera. So we've installed or had, um, I guess when I first started, uh, we had some explosion uh, proofing systems in some of our baghouse uh, operations can't remember exactly. I think they were, anyway, I, don't, I can't remember what name, but I think they were a fike. But anyway, um, so we've had dust collection. We've had some in the duct work and then in bucket elevators and, and, and conveyor drags. So those are three main ones. So we have dust collectors, bucket elevators, um, and conveying systems, drag conveying systems. And were these mostly sort of explosion vent panels or were you using suppression or spark detection or what kind of systems, I guess, were you implementing with, within these applications? Yeah, so some of them combination. So some of the bag houses have the explosion venting. Um, so they are located where they're ne uh, next to an exterior wall. And if there was an event, the, the, it would vent outside or we've got them outside on top of a roof Again, their their venting would be out to the atmosphere. Some of them are the legs are they're a traditional leg where you've got the head house going out through the roof. Um, they're in an area where they're they're isolated from any potential workers around. Um, so, in a typical, I'll call it old-fashioned elevator leg where you've got a workhouse and it's pretty much designed for just that's all it's doing. There isn't going to be anybody in there unless you're, you're doing some focus cleaning or something like that. And then we've recently had some 
where we installed three newer systems, but those were going to be with inside normal operating conditions and or one was installed in a stairwell and it's got it's a potential opening or the venting that you would typically see about every 20 feet that panel is pointing right along the stairwell so that, those change the dynamics of what and how we need to install what kind of protection we needed to install so that i guess that's kind of what we wanted to talk about too is interestingly what changed once i started looking at it in a little bit more detail yeah so i guess that begs the question um what what changed once you started looking at it in more detail so with that so bangs at the the bucket elevator is located within the building and it's not located near an exterior wall and its head house is terminates inside the building as well as its boot pit that changed according to our nfpa standard 68 and 69 as well as the local jurisdiction from the fire department as part of the design team my task was to find out what kind of requirements were we going to need for this system because of the, the location. Initially, on the uh, conceptual and detailed designs, we didn't have any fire suppression at all, and I started to ask these questions to our design team. So when I went down to the fire department and talked to the um, structural and integrity engineer, or the expert, uh, he and I started talking about it, and they were still going by the 2112 standards, and we were on the 2017 year, 2017, 2018 year. So eventually they were going to adopt 2017 standards from that 6869 on the NFPA, which that meant then we needed to install and um, install the fire suppression systems. Now it's easier to do that before you implement the, the process and not retroactively, as we all know from, you know from our prevention through design. So unfortunately though, I added on another couple hundred thousand dollars to the project because of that, but it's a life safety code and that's, I think that's what, get, what gave the, uh, the strict considerations and we had to do, we had to do it. So, we look, and so then that began, began our search as to who we were going to use. And the reason being is that if there's a potential for the occupancy, then we have to control any potential de deflagration or any potential explosion that might affect life safety. I just want to clarify a couple of things. So you're talking about a, a bucket elevator system where the bucket elevator is fully inside, um, both the boot and the head and, and the elevator itself. Um, we were talking with the authorities having jurisdiction, which in this case is the fire department and the fire marshal, and they were sort of on a previous version of um, NFPA 68 and 69, but we're moving towards NFPA to the, the most recent version, um, which required different types of systems. And you said fire protection systems. Did you mean deflagration protection as well? Yeah, yeah. It, okay. Yeah, that's what I meant. Then those sort of systems then add to the 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 cost of the project which makes a lot of sense were you were you redesigning and reinstalling new bucket elevators or were these kind of modifications they were putting on the existing ones that were in use at the facility so these were new 
new ones um, that were going to be installed. Okay, this is perfect. I think this is a really good sort of you know jumping off point because there's probably someone listening to this interview right now going, well, that's exactly what I have to do, <laughs> you know, over the next couple of months is, is to install these systems. So I think it's, it's a, uh, you know, an opportune time to talk about that. So kind of walk us through some of that process then. How did you, I mean, you already talked about discussing with the AHJ and figuring out what the requirements are as per the NFPA standards. So what sort of came next in that process? So part of our design team, we had to general contractor or, or the uh, design engineers, then we started researching and resourcing what kind of systems were going to be applicable and um, kind of rule out some, some others and, and see which ones are, are good for us. Because also, let's keep in mind we're a food industry. So we wanted to make sure that we're going to be able to put in a system that wouldn't or potentially find a system that wouldn't contaminate the product. We did find a system that would work. However, now when you're talking food grade baking soda versus regular baking soda, you're, you're doubling, tripling, almost quadrupling the cost of it. So we elected to go with, I guess you would call it a quasi food grade system because we could contain it, if something goes off, but it's gonna it's it's gonna ruin the product and whatever's inside the the elevator, and or potentially wherever that elevator drops the product into. So there's there's some costs that we're gonna uh, get, going to be associated with that, and there's gonna be more detail we're gonna talk about. I'm sure here in the next future. <laughs> so you you're looking at suppression systems then? Is that right? Yeah. So we looked at. Yeah, suppression systems that are going to detect, and we looked at it two different ways. We looked at it from an atmospheric change, which is the millimeters of, um, you know, and pressure differential, or we did a light sensitivity, and we chose the light sensitivity. Versus pressure sensors versus um, light sensors, yeah. All right, so you have the light sensors that were inside the elevator um, and suppression system. It's important to, to talk a bit about this sanitary requirement because it's good for food processing. If you need a sanitary solution, that's going to be more expensive to have food grade uh, suppressants or, you know, comparing that against the cost of, okay, well, maybe I'm going to lose all the material in the elevator and downstream up to some certain point. Can you walk us through that that process, like how, how you went about making that decision? Yeah, so then it also depends on what product is going through. So... If you had whole corneal corn versus a powdery, that changes how much and, and the length of the bucket elevator too. So if you if it travels so many distances, then you either have to have, regardless on either bucket elevator, you have to have one at the top and one at the bottom, wherever the motors and pulleys and belt systems would occur then if it's depending on the the length of travel as well as material that's going through it so the finer it is the you know, the more combustible and dustier that it can be then you may have to install cartridges and canisters in the middle of the 
the length of the, the elevator. So that kind of threw us for a little bit of a curveball too, because one of our systems goes about three or four floors and one of them travels eight floor, no, six floors. And the one that went up the sixth floor required an extra canister. An extra canister means extra cost. And when I talk about canister, it's the, um, the high propulsion or the high explosive discharge that's going to go off when it senses and then flood the, flood the chamber and put out, put out the oxygen, smothers out the oxygen using the, the baking soda. So while we're looking at that, when we did light sensitivity, to add another little concerning piece of that is that the light sensitivity is, is sensitive enough that indirect shining of the flashlight into the area where the sensor might pick it up was potentially a concern for us because that um, this is like point, um, it was 400 millilumens of light sensitivity. If we think about the lumens, and now we're talking millilumens, now you're, you know, we're really adding a lot more sensitivity to this, a lot more concern, particularly for one of these installs, we had a, an inspection chamber that and some light probes that operate and tells you that there's product flowing through the bucket elevator. Well, with that being within the 48 inches or four feet of the sensors, there's that potential for this to be discharged. And there's some cost associated with a discharge. So one is the cost is if we have an accidental discharge for these um, these high pressure chambers to go off, it's $20,000 to reset the chamber. And then it's if you did, and then you had potential loss of product either within inside the elevator and whatever bin it goes into where now the costs go up to about fifty thousand dollars so add that to the twenty thousand dollars and if we had an accidental discharge we just lost nearly hundred thousand dollars because you have you know time and effort to clean it out too so now we're talking more you know business context of what's it mean for an accidental discharge so um so by looking at that we wanted to we wanted to be very sure and very uh about how do we prevent accidental discharge and then what does it mean when we're going to be working on it or if we're going to be cleaning out what is the action items that is required for our personnel whether it's the operators it's our sanitation crew it's our maintenance crew so we had the, basically some management discussion or management change discussions with these folks and saying that, okay, here's what we have to change. You have to close a shunt. Uh, we have to lock it out with, with when you close this shunt. So that then it prevents any, it disarms the sensors and then it prevents any accidental discharge from those chambers. And the way we, we went through the training and we developed these placarding with the pictures and how do you do the lockout tag out stuff? Because we wanted to make sure everybody involved was part of this process. Then we also put it into a testing mode where we tried to set off the lights and determine whether or not um, our flashlights would really turn it, would 
arm it and, and make it go off? Or were our flashlights within acceptable range? So, because those would be the main uh, sources of where the lumens would be interacting with these sensors and potentially discharging it. Fortunately, the light waves of LED flashlights don't affect it. And that's what we determined through our, our testing. And we got, because the, we had to do our own testing because the manufacturer going back to it, they weren't sure what kind of lumens and what kind of light would set it off. They couldn't tell us if it was going to be normal flashlights or, you know, normal light bulb LEDs or, or what have you. So we were, we were doing our own testing and shared our information and testing back to the, to this company. So they were able to add that to their troubleshooting and, and to their technical advisors. There were the, Lights that are in that particular facility were the old yellow lights that you see in a lot of buildings. Those were a perfect light sensitivity or perfect light wave that those would trigger the discharge of the HPD canisters. So we had we went back and we changed the lights in in the building, particularly around these areas where where it might occur. And we went with the LED and more energy efficient lights, which it wasn't really in the initial plans, but we had the lights for another area, so we just moved them into this. So that became that became better too. Now the controls to all these are also there. We restricted the, any of the controls to just the maintenance folks because they're they're used to programmable logic and and the way these are computerized and the way it's the way it was designed. So and then we had some computer modules, computer, where if the system was shut down when we did our practicing, it shuts down the entire leg or the milling operation and gives a notice that there was been some discharge and then we would follow, the, follow that sequence. But with all those actions that we did, I think that we're, of course it's not completely fail safe, but it's, it's helpful that we can try to minimize any of the accidental discharge that might occur. Yeah, I want to highlight a key thing here that you that you went through because I think it's important. I've um, heard this as a as a complaint and and actually seen cases where there's you know as soon as the the uh, suppressant system is installed, they have discharges sometimes accidental. We we have seen that, and sometimes it's because they actually have sparks going through their their operation. Um, they just haven't been unlucky enough for one of those to cause a, an explosion. So you mentioned a couple of things. Talk around the selection of suppressant to use, considerations of, around whether or not that's food grade and and you know what the loss would be if it's not. Talk about some design considerations, the length of the elevator, how fine is the dust. That's going to govern how many bottles or how many canisters you need. You talked a lot about this accidental discharge and, and really avoiding because it it's quite expensive and time-consuming to clean up and you need to shut down the processing line um, while you're doing that as well, and you need to refill the bottles, get them recharged. And the solution that you kind of went through is this testing method. So for the testing method, you disengage the, and, and kind of correct me if I'm wrong here, but you disengage the, the canister so they didn't fire, but you just had to turn on a, you know, a, a light or show some sort of audible signal or something when they would have discharged. Is that right? Yeah, so the the actual detonator wires to make the, those canisters discharge were not hooked up yet. 
Okay. We purposefully kept those off. And the milling operation wasn't it. It wasn't live either. It had not been commissioned. It was still in its trial phase. So yeah, so you weren't you were able to tell if the bottles would have went off, but you they weren't connected. Right. That allowed you then to do some testing around how sensitive is it when you open up the equipment, how sensitive is it to um, flashlights, and how sensitive is it to surrounding equipment. Any any so you mentioned already some of the things that you found in terms of the flashlights that weren't setting it off necessarily, um, changing out your your overhead lighting in that area. Any other kind of things that came out of that testing that you think the, the audience would be interested in, in knowing about? I guess just normal, well, so it's a change. It's a totally different system that nobody knew about, including management all the way to the front line. And so just more awareness. Uh, there are some idea or things that we can monitor on a day-to-day basis that helps us to understand maybe if there's anything issues, such as a gauge that's on the outside part of where the the bottles are as long as the gauge is green or the needles in the green spot then we're good we're maintaining pressure we don't have any any issues we had in uh, a couple of locations where the gauges fell low and so that was concerning to us as to what does that mean when it goes low and so our t- the te- technician had come on site and it turns out that these canisters have a structural defect in them and that when they they're leaking somewhere within the within the canister they're manufactured in Kansas City so we're wondering if it was some sort of manufacturing uh, manufacturing flaw but they came out they changed it out and it, it wasn't a big deal, but it was fortunate enough that we had the monitoring devices where somebody picked up on the gauge. We also then had uh, sensors in the computer system that said that there was uh, lo- there was a low pressure, and so those are important monitoring components that we need to make sure that we're we're tracking and following so that we can ensure the safety of the of the des- designs. Yeah, those are really good, really good tips. And it's good to have the, the gauge on the bottle so you can tell if they're still pressurized enough because that's going to govern throw distance, things that go in determining how many bottles you need um, will be governed by that that pressure. Did you ever do like a full live test? I'm wondering, like you could run the whole operation still with the detonators disconnected just to see if you get any response. We did. Yeah, we did. And we actually, so... We used a, a standard flashlight that had a yellow uh, wavelength, not an LED flashlight. So we used a, a, a regular flashlight, shone it um, into where the sensor area is, and it did. It would have gone off as well as it would have shut the system down, and it would have indicated on the computer panel that we had we had major shutdown, major malfunction. That was our goal was to see see what it, that it was going to work and how did it work and what kind of systems was it shutting down. Yeah, and now you can test your interlocking and things as well, right, to make sure that's shutting down all the pieces of equipment that you want. That's a really good tip. I didn't think of that to actually test that it works. I was thinking more because companies that don't do this sort of testing they and they have a false activation it can become difficult because they don't know whether or not it's because somebody, because of some sort of light issue, the supplier doesn't know if they've actually have 
if they actually stopped an explosion <laughs> um, or if they, you know, maybe they do have hot embers or something going through their system that could lead to an explosion, but just, you know, has a low likelihood. So it's only a one in, you know, a million operation kind of thing, but those sparks are enough. There's a safety tolerance on, on the equipment. So those sparks might be enough to trigger the suppressant and to get, get by this, it might be worthwhile to run your system normally I don't even know if this is possible, but I'm just with what you're saying, I'm thinking about it to run your system normally with the everything set up the way it would go, just with the bottles disconnected, and see if you're tripping that during normal operation. Because if you are, then you might have an, an issue that you need to investigate. Maybe you, you have hot tramp metal upstream, or uh, you know, or something that's uh, something that's choked and and causing embers to form. But then at least you're not setting off your suppressant, and everyone's you know trying to figure out why it got set off. So there's a couple ways to test it. Test it in like when you're opening up the equipment, like you were saying, test that it works, that you, it actually would set off and, and deactivate the equipment that you want when you release the suppressant. Um, then also test for these false positives during normal operation without maybe the bottles connected. If you do all those things, then I think you would be in a place where, okay, you're, you're, you're satisfied and there's a, a low chance of, of having these, false activations and also not having an activation when you want it to go. Is there anything else there you think might be interesting for, you know, someone implementing this type of system to also think about for this, this testing part? So the other thing that we did was we videoed it so we could add it to our training library. So we videoed how the, how we triggered it, what kind of alarms we would see both on the um, computer panel as well as on the, the system control panel, because there, there's separate systems that interact with each other. And with that video, I think that really helped out with, you know, onboarding with uh, maintenance folks as well as operators and sanitation. So they understood what does it mean to lock it out? Because it's a total, it's, it's, a, it's a unique way that you're going to lock out a, a, a particular system that is highly sophisticated and is designed to, to be, you know, very impactful from preventing any fires, explosions, etc. And with it being new, it, a lot of the managers, they weren't aware of it either. And we just had to be more proactive about it and really insist that the installer be present and help us out with troubleshooting and set up an arrangement with them that they are coming out every quarter to verify that the system is working appropriately. And then eventually we can, as we get more familiar with it, we can turn it over to our maintenance solely. But for the, the first year, we wanted to make sure that we had support from the install, installation company to help us out. So I think the more communication, the more training, you know, it's more of those exposures and practice opportunities that our folks get more comfortable with it just like any other type of training and skill mastering of skills that you were trying to accomplish yeah i i can see how that would be really helpful to have that support for some period you know if it's a year having them coming out every quarter and i think it, I've, I've talked to some of the suppliers and they actually recommend that as well it's really like the suppliers want to keep coming out until they're confident that the team that is doing it there won't miss anything, right? Like it's, um, I think about it when you're, you know, when you're in um, junior high and you start going like the woodshop class, well, okay, they, you know, first they saw the, they, they use the bandsaw for you and then they, 
let you do a you know a couple simple things and then they watch you and eventually as you get more and more skilled you're allowed to use the equipment alone <laughs> but only once they know that you don't won't cut your finger off <laughs> so we talked about installation quite a bit what what did it look like in terms of ongoing maintenance processes so once you get the equipment installed was there anything that people should be thinking about in, in regards to that so yeah so i think one of the biggest takeaways from that is that there if you are working on the bucket elevators say you are going to maybe you're replacing the buckets and because these buckets on this, these particular machine or this particular equipment, they're only like about, Oh, say four inches square. So they're small within this chamber. And what our example of this is that we did have to go in and do some maintenance sooner than we anticipated. And when, what that requires is that we make sure that we're, locking out the top and the bottom and you're going to prevent any of this any potential accidental discharge so that takes some careful consideration and planning so that more folks are involved and you know the key stakeholders are aware that we're going to be doing some work work on it so it's just you just can't shut her down right away and just start working you have to really be diligent about how you're going to approach doing your maintenance work on the on the equipment as far as like any preventative maintenance there isn't much other than just looking at the gauges and you know but then that can i think also be a scary part of it is because if you're not careful and having a slow deliberate approach then you you just can't treat it like it's you know 15 yards from there is a is a pre-existing bucket elevator that doesn't have any systems installed on it. So, but it's in a different part of the building, it's a different part of the mill, but it's a bucket elevator. You can't go under the same assumption that a bucket elevator is the same as the other bucket elevator, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, it's it's newer install, it's, and there again, you and I had talked before, it's, so we have one that was, installed the same way but it was installed 20 years ago and now we have a new one and the new one required some uh, some suppression so what what's the difference between the two and that, that often becomes the question as well is that where your things like the placards come in and, and that sort of thing where you can put some uh, information right on the machine so people know before they start opening things up right yeah so we've got the placarding involved and and then the, the training too but we got we stress that training a lot is that you got to make sure that if we're working on these particular pieces of equipment that there's a few extra steps and additional lockouts we're still locking out the bucket elevators um, like we do the other ones to stop motors you know block them block the belts from from falling so the mechanical lockout that's that's followed but this, this requires the HPD lockout or the suppression lockout, which is another additional step. Yeah, it's really interesting to go through that whole process, really from soup to nuts, of planning out for a suppression system on a bucket elevator, what you might need, talking to your authority, having your jurisdiction, see what the standards and requirements are in terms of NFPA and then the, what they require. Probably good to have a conversation with your insurance company as well. Um, to see if they have any any requirements that are above and beyond or that what you're going to do is installing is going to meet their requirements. Um, otherwise, you may 
you know, you may end up with increased premiums and not very, very happy <laughs> if you don't talk to them first. And we talked about things around design considerations. So what suppression to use, how it's actually designed, some considerations on the length of the bucket elevator, how many canisters they need. This will make a big difference in the overall cost of your safety program. It's good to work with a, you know, reputable supplier that can help you answer a lot of these questions. And it also can provide the ongoing support that we talked about. Accidental discharge is a big topic around this and really went through a lot of the testing processes that you can do to make sure that you're not going to have that sort of issue. Um, and even once it's up and running, things like locking out the equipment correctly, um, mechanically, but also locking out suppression valves before you start working on it. Is there any, I don't think we have time to go through like uh, a lot of different pieces of equipment. I found this really instructive, really helpful, but any sort of high level considerations from other pieces of equipment that you've had that you think might be interesting for the audience as well? Yeah, and I suppose it's another it's another podcast, but it's your dust collection system that tends to be, as we've seen recently, is that that if it's if if we're not paying attention to those systems and training our folks as to what kind of simple troubleshooting would an operator be able to interpret from just a walk by. You know, we, we train them to look at a magnahelic gauge, and that is pretty simple. But what about the air poppers and what about um, doors and you know, monitoring the socks? And how do we know when too much cake buildup or how do we know it's leaking? And, you know, some of those troubleshooting for bag houses is important. I think that often gets overlooked. I know it does it at our, our facility, and we're trying to ramp that up more, too. That also, I think, will help with preventive maintenance and and um, predictable maintenance and, and moving down the, down the line or, or just, you know, a very comprehensive approach to combustible dust awareness. Yeah, and Kevin Cardwell back on episode um, 79 of the podcast from from earlier that we had on the show, mentioned that as well. We were talking about three challenges in bag host maintenance and, and one of the big challenges highlighted was the sort of training. So do your operators know all the measuring devices that they have access to. So you have the you have the gauges, the magnahelix, but do they know what kind of sounds to be listening for? Do you know what it should be doing under normal operation? You know, what what should be the pressure differentials and you know how to inspect the bags and all that sort of stuff. I think if you if you want a, a well functioning system, and it's important to have a well functioning system because that's getting your dust out of your ductwork, that's getting your dust out of your, your facility, stopping the fugitive dust from accumulating. You need to train your operators properly. And he he talked about that quite depth. So it's good that you you brought that up again here. Hopefully we were convincing the folks that are listening that uh, maybe don't have that to, to go in and, and make sure they're getting that sort of training set up for their operators as well. And I think timing is also important because you really can't introduce it into a, like a new hire training because it's going the complexity of those systems is going right over their head. But you can't lose sight of it either. So you get them to started, you know, within the first couple of weeks when they've had exposure to it and now start introducing it. And often what we find is some of the operators, they haven't been trained either. So there's a big gap that an opportunity where we could get better at, at the, at the whole system. Yeah. It's probably two thoughts there. One and, and on the other side, the, the experienced folks may be retiring and taking that knowledge with them. <laughs> but then also it's, it's probably good to have a written plan, like a, I don't know, we'll call it an education plan, but like say that's going to take three months to get to for somebody to get to full operation of understanding the system, like written down beforehand, not just doing it ad hoc. Okay, Tony knows this much. Um, you know, like 
to actually pre-plan how long you think it takes for somebody to ramp up to being fully operational, three months or six months or 12 months, whatever it is. Um, but to actually write that out and then, you know, have that sort of checkpoints along the way so that they know. Um, and and it's not like certification, but it's... It's a competency. Yeah, it's like yeah. Com- make sure they have the confidence and that they're building it in the right amount of time. In the last episode, we talked about lessons learned from a combustible explosion. In this episode, we talked about practical considerations for installing equipment and systems. Uh, folks a lot on the bucket elevator uh, example. And the the kind of thing I want to go back to just at the end is is around the EHS managers in in these facilities. Any any recommendations on how they can best go about getting buy-in from from management or getting buy-in from the operators that training's needed or that you know safety devices are needed or just any kind of final words of wisdom or things that you've seen that have worked um, in your experience that somebody that's in that role could could take away with today. I would like to try to persuade. I guess that's that's kind of the what we're talking about: persuade or influence through stories i mean like within our facility we can tell stories of of and apply them in real life situations and um, show pictures of rooms dusting out and and highlight what what does a a magnahelic pressure of zero mean versus a three to five range versus a 10 depending you know if it's too high it's perfect and or it's too low because too low zero typically doesn't mean it's good either. So there's lots of resources out there. I go from the, to the manufacturer. Um, we got my uh, Mac, we have Kais, uh, we have, um, where's some of that, Bueller. So go back to them, use those as references. Uh, I always like to turn safety into a business acumen. So if we're maintaining our equipment, we're not injuring people, we're not polluting the environment, um, you know, because in the, in the end, especially for like dust collection, you know, a $70,000 fine from the EPA, that, that'll open up eyes. So if we can uh, bring, bring these contexts into the business savvy and, and help our operators as well as our executives or particularly your CEO, your finance person, those are some of your best friends when you're trying to spend money. Um, but you're spending money from efficiency and life safety and quality. So if we can address the safety quality production tripod, then I think we're we're more successful at making change. Yeah, and I couldn't think of a, a better place to, to leave this episode off on because I think those are, are stage words of, of advice for, for anyone trying to get uh, you know safer systems put in to, to make those it's more than just making the arguments. It's actually being, like you said, persuasive um, and, and convincing people to, to make change. It's easy to do what you've always done. It's hard to, to change. <laughs> so you need to throw things in like efficiency, like life safety and like quality and see and um, illustrate how what you're, you're going to do is, is addressing those issues as well. So I so say thank you again, uh, Rick. This has been another great episode and I thinking it won't be too long until we get you back on the podcast, talk through some more of your experience but I do appreciate you taking the time today to to come on the show. My pleasure. And uh, stay safe out there. Thanks, Rick. We'll talk soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Rick Smith, and we were talking through practical considerations for installing explosion protection systems. In particular, we went sort of soup nuts through an example of installing um, 
explosion suppressant on a bucket elevator system. This is an example that Rick actually had, had completed um, during his work. And in this case, the bucket elevator is fully located inside. And we really talked about the, the whole process then from meeting with your authority, having jurisdiction, getting their buy-in on what the plan is, looking at the NFPA standards, getting the information together, uh, looking through design considerations, including type of suppressant, including number of containers and bottles um, to, to prevent explosions. And this is based on the, the length of the bucket elevator, the particle size that you're dealing with, and the moisture content, which are going to uh, impact your, your deflagration rate um, and your, your KST value from your experimental testing, your Pmax values, and other things also go in. Really, this is where you're going to be working with your supplier to figure out what do you need to make it safe. This is going to go into costing the equipment as well. We spent quite a bit of time talking about around testing, how to avoid accidental discharge. And this, I think, is a really valuable part of this interview. It's something we hear a lot about and a lot of concerns around um, avoiding sort of accidental discharge because it can be expensive. On the flip side, you, you need it to discharge when the thing needs to <laughs> come into action. Otherwise, you have a, a whole other issue. So we kind of talked about it from three sides. So test that it does go off right and that the interlocks and locking mechanisms are set up right. You can kind of do this with disconnecting the bottles, but, uh, you know, shining a light on the on the sensor if that's how you're using it. I also suggested maybe running it live like it would normally be running, but with the bottles deactivated just to see if you're tripping it with something else in your system. Maybe you have sparks or embers already in there. It'd be good to know that. Obviously, this is a tricky situation because you may actually trigger an explosion while you're doing that. I don't really think about that till right now, but to, to, to be honest, you, you know, you kind of need to know. You need to know if you're shooting sparks through your system or embers through your system on a regular routine basis uh, because you need to fix that as well. Um, and then we had things around, you know, opening up the bucket elevator and coming up with the right operating procedures and understanding if you're going to trip those suppressants or not. Talk a, lot, a lot of key things around training, using videos, using stories, using examples, training over time, not just dumping a whole bunch of information on somebody when they first start but sort of matching the level of competency to their experience level with the equipment that they're using, um, things around maintenance and other things as well. And, and Rick left us off with some um, words on on just how to go about getting things done in, in facilities handling combustible dust from a health and safety manager's perspective. So if you want to connect with Rick, we'll have his contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 87. Uh, I want to say thank you to him again and to everyone's listening on. I hope you stay safe and have a productive week ahead. And I want to thank you for everything you're doing in the industry handling combustible dust around the world. 